All right, well, let's get going. Well, last week, if you remember, we left off with the book of Ezra. Okay, we've been going through this. We're almost done with this series, guys, because we've got the book of Esther and the book of Nehemiah left, and then I've got one sermon on the end of this Emmaus Road um, that I, I want to show you kind of the, how everything all comes together and we're going to land the plane. And I know it's been a long time, but I felt it's important. And one of the things, and we talked about this, we had a, a group of us that got together uh, last Sunday night and just talking about the Bible illiteracy in this country is unbelievable. In fact, we don't know our scriptures and we don't know why we believe what we believe. And, and, and when you look at the statistics of churchgoers, 19% of churchgoers actually believe what the Bible says, 19%. And there's a problem with that, because if we're going to base our faith off of this, we've got to know why we do what we do, and we've got to understand it. And that's why uh, the culture is the way it is, because of a weak church. And we've gotten away from that. We've gotten a lot more into the world where we want to, you know, just fill the seats. That's our goal. We want to fill seats. We want more people to show up. And that's never what God intended. We want to reach more people. And so we've been going through this Old Testament as a survey to kind of look at it. And how are we finding Christ in the Old Testament is really what we're doing. And so we finished up Ezra, and Ezra's really built into two parts. The first part is, is, is the end of the exile, the end of the 70 years. Cyrus sends them, gives Zerubbabel permission to go back. He says, I want you to go to Jerusalem, and I want you to rebuild the temple. The reason he does that is because he sees that in the book of Isaiah, written 150 years before he was alive, it put his name in it, and that he said that he's going to be the one to rebuild the temple. It grabbed his attention. Because Isaiah prophesied that. God told him exactly who was going to do it, even down to the day it was going to happen. So he sends them back, and about 50,000 people go with him, and they go, and they finally get it rebuilt. And then Ezra comes into play. Now, Ezra was a priest. Well, you could say that he was a prophet as well, but he was most certainly a priest. And he goes back, and he takes about 2,000 with him. And these are the guys that are going to do the work of the ministry. They're going to do the temple work and things like that. And they get all of that going on. And between chapters 8 and 9 is the story of Esther. It's kind of that gap in there. It's between chapter 8 and 9 is where Esther comes in. And Esther is an interesting book. Now, after that, you get into the book of Nehemiah where he comes in and he's going to rebuild the wall. And we're going to talk about that next. But we're going to start with Esther. Um, believe it or not, you know, I'd actually planned to do this differently. I had uh, all of Nehemiah all written out. Thursday, I was ready to go. And then, and then Thursday night, I was, I was just praying. And, and God said, We've got to go to Esther first. And so Friday morning, I came in here, and boy, did I put a lot together in a short amount of time, because I, I spent a lot of time on these things, just so you know. But when we look at the book of Esther, it's extremely obscure to most people, because it's a story of human love. It's a story about palaces, a story about the kings, and it was really in the glory days of the Persian Empire, because Esther is going to become the queen. Now, she is Jewish. They were not. She's not qualified to be the queen. She's just, she's there, she was a, 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 an orphan who her uncle, or excuse me, her cousin, takes in. But God uses Esther to preserve the Jewish people, which is what takes place after. When Ezra goes back, just prior to that is this story of Esther, which is why we believe that the kings had such a soft spot for the Jewish people. Because what's going to happen in the book of Esther is there's going to be a Hitler-like attempt to wipe them out, wipe out the Jewish people. And so it commemorates with this Jewish, the deliverance that takes place in all of this and something called the Feast of Purim, and we'll talk about that later. But no, most of the time, when you get into the book of Esther, here's how it goes. They talk about the book of Ruth, and then they get to the book of Esther. Why? Because this is the only two books that are named after women. And they combine the two. Now, Ruth is important. Ruth is about a Gentile, or excuse me, it, well, yeah, a Gentile bride that is married to a Jewish man, but it is the most important book to the church because it lays out exactly how Jesus redeems all of us. 
And it's so important, and we talked about that, and if you didn't hear it, go back and listen to it, because my goodness, it's like the truths that are in the book of Ruth are unbelievable. And it's so important for the church age. But we've got a comparison here of the two different books, because in the book of Ruth, she was a Gentile woman, but in Esther, she is a, a, is a uh, Jewish woman. Now, Ruth was living in a a Gentile woman. She was a Moabite. She was living in a a Jewish world. Esther's the opposite. She lives among the Jews. Esther lives among the Gentiles, the Persians, okay? Ruth marries a Jew, Boaz, which you obviously know, and he was in the royal line. In fact, that is where the Messiah comes from. But Esther, she's going to marry the Gentile king here, you're going to see in a moment, and he was in charge of the entire empire. Boaz was just a wealthy man. But the Persian Empire was big. Ruth emphasizes the sovereignty of God, but what you're going to see here in Esther is it's the providence of God and how he takes care of them and how he does what he does. The thing that's most often not talked about is in Ruth, you see Yahweh mentioned all the time, but in the book of Esther, the name of God is never mentioned one time, not once. Now, it's implied. You can certainly see him at work there, but God is never mentioned. It's the only book in the Bible that's like that. It's definitely intriguing. And so there's a lot there when you start looking at the comparison of the two. Because there's no mention of God. There's no reference to worship. There's no reference to faith. There's no prediction of the Messiah. There's no mention of heaven or hell. There's nothing religious about this book. And it makes you wonder why it's in the Bible at all. In fact, it was argued about for years of whether it even should be in there. Martin Luther didn't think the book of Esther should be in there at all. He didn't think it belonged. Why? Because it doesn't mention God. It doesn't mention worship. It doesn't, I mean, it's a, but you can see the hand of God. And what's interesting with the book of Esther, when you look at what her name means, it means something hidden. Maybe it means we should dig a little bit deeper. Okay? So when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11, it says, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written down for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And also in Romans 15, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Both of these are written by Paul, and both of them are saying everything was written down for a reason. None of this is by happenstance, and it was no purpose. It was written there so that you and I can glean from it, and we can learn from it, and we can apply it to our lives, and we can see the Messiah's hand at work and how He's going to come through all of this. And so you can break this down into about four different chunks. I think I've got this, yeah. Because you're going to see, we're going to start in the first part, Now, we're not always going to break it up this way, but this is how it is today. You're going to watch Esther rise to power, and you're going to see her cousin named Mordecai. And then you're going to watch there a guy named Haman who is going to threaten the Jews. And then you're going to watch a kind of a plot twist in the whole thing because it completely reverses. And then you're going to watch the triumph of the Jews. And at the end of that is where you get to the part where Ezra is able to go back and so on and so forth. So that's where all this comes. The story of Esther predates Nehemiah by about 30 years. It's not that far. She's going to marry the king. It's going to lead to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And a lot of the exiles that had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple were already there. They were back in Jerusalem. So this is a side story to that. There's, as I said, about 50,000. But 50,000 people went back. It's estimated between 2 and 3 million were exiled. So what were the rest of them doing? Why did they not go back? Why were they not interested in going back? Because most of them stayed. And you think about it. In one hand, they built lives there. They've got homes there. I mean, This is home. Even up to the time of Christ, there's a lot of Jewish people still living in the Persian area. Now, the empire wasn't what it was because Rome had taken over, but they were still there. And that has a lot to do with the Magi and what happens in what we call the Christmas story. It all interconnects. So let's jump into the book of Esther in in chapter 1 and verse 1. 
Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that the third year of his reign he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the power of Persia and the media and the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. Now the name Ahasuerus may not mean a lot to you. But the name Xerxes should, because that's the name that we hear many times, because Ahasuerus is a Hebrew name, Xerxes is a Greek name, and most of the time we get our interpretations, our translation from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, is what Jesus would have read, okay? So this is him, this is that king, he's King Xerxes, he predates the king that's in the Nehemiah. And so... Um, he reigned from 486 to 465 B.C., and he was the son of Darius I, who was mentioned in the book of Ezra. He's also mentioned in Nehemiah, but not so much. And there's a few things that go on, because Cyrus allows the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple in 538 B.C. They finally get it done in 516 B.C. They had a whole bunch of different things that were going on um, that kind of stood in the way, people getting in the way of the building of the temple. And at one point, Xerxes told them they needed to stop. Or Ahasuerus told him that they need to stop, however you want to say it. But Xerxes is going to become king, as I said, in 486 B.C. And so we're about 50, 50 to 60 years at the end of the exile when they had gone back, okay? So there's a time frame there. And it says that they were in Shushan, uh, the, where the citadel was. This was the capital. It's also called Susa, depending on how your Bible interprets or whatever. It's about 150 miles north of the Persian Gulf, near the western border of Iran. It's 200 miles east of Babylon. The empire has expanded during the Persian reign. And so Darius I, the guy I was just telling you about, basically his father, he made it this the capital, the administrative capital, and he built a palace there. And I've got a map here that I can kind of show you here. It is uh, right here. You can't hardly see it, but that's Susa, Okay. So it's all the way over. Jerusalem's right there. That's how far away they are. Now, that doesn't look that big in a map, but remember, they couldn't jump in a plane and go, or a car for that matter. So they would walk, and it took four months for Ezra to get from over here to over there. So, I mean, there's just a lot going on, and it's a big, big area. But it, what happens is around 484 B.C., because you see he's throwing a massive party. But 484, there was a rebellion that comes up from Babylon and from Egypt and from these different places just prior. I mean, we're talking within a year or two of the story of the book of Esther. And so he squashes that whole thing. He manages to put it, put it up. And this happened in his second year. And the throwing of the party in verse 3, where he's showing off all the things of the kingdom and to his officials, and his, showing everybody about the 127 nations and all of that. They say, that what are they partying about? They shut down this uprising, this attempt to overthrow is what's going on in the background here. So it's in the third year of his reign, it's right after shutting down these uprisings. How long was that party? 180 days, six months. That's quite a party. I mean, and, and these were no, so these guys were well known for their ability to drink, okay? So think about that. They may not have been sober for six straight months, okay? Oh, and it gets better. But one thing about it, because they were well known for these drinking parties, but Xerxes had a very irrational temper, 
and he exhibits fits of rage often. And so there was not a guy that you wanted to mess with. And you're going to see that come into play here in a little bit. Let's jump to verse 5. And when these days were completed, in other words, the end of that 180-day party, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel. From great to small, in the court of the garden of the king's palace, there were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple and silver rods and marble pillars. And the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. And they served drinks and golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other with royal wine in abundance according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory. For so the king had ordered all the officers in his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. And Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Okay? So think about this. What does he do at the end of this 180-day party? He throws a week-long party. You think the guy kind of enjoyed partying a little bit maybe? Now, the other one was for all the noblemen and all the, the big mucky. I mean, it was a big nation. They'd bring these people in. These were the governors, basically, and, and mayors, if you will. This is how we would think of it. And that was what the 180-day party was. But this other one, the seven-day-long one, that's kind of for everybody else. That'd be for you and me. Just the folks that were around the area, we just didn't have enough party. It's for everybody else. And so it's only a week long. So he cuts it back a bit. You know, he's, he's, he's showing some, some uh, control here and restraint. Now, it says that it was in the court of the garden, and this garden is attached to the, pa- the palace. And so these, the Persian Empire developed these massive gardens, and it was a place for them to escape. It was a beautiful thing set up. You've seen it in movies, anything dealing with the Persian Empire. You see it in the movie Aladdin. The palace has got this big garden attached to it. It's one of these things where they'd have these exotic plants, these exotic animals. Essentially, it was an oasis, and these things were huge. It was massive. In fact, one of the kings during this time period, he actually made one to look just like the mountains because where his wife was from was more mountainous and she was homesick. So he made the garden look more mountainous to represent that, to try to make her happy. So these things were massive, and you could fit a ton of people in this. And obviously, because everybody in the area is going to come. Then it says that it had white and blue linen curtains, which on the surface doesn't mean a whole lot, but the royal colors in Persia were white and blue. And so, again, it was, it was part of the kingdom and had these fine linen cores. It was all very expensive. It said silver, silver rods, solid silver, not silver plated, not sterling silver. It was silver, like expensive stuff. And they had marble pillars. I mean, in other words, they spared no expense. I mean, it, it was expensive. The couches were made of gold. This was not gold plated. They were solid gold couches, plural, several of them. They'd put these fine linens with this cushion on them, and they would, they would sit there. I mean, it was extremely extravagant. And they're talking about the mosaic floors made of the alabaster and the turquoise. I mean, it was beautiful all across the world. I mean, you couldn't get any better of that. And then it said it served the royal wine, which, of course, was the best wine that was available. It wasn't the standard stuff. It wasn't, you know, just something that you'd walk down the street and get. This stuff was made specifically for the king. And it's talked about the gold glasses that they served these in, and each one wasn't the same. It's showing the extravagance. That is what they're trying to get across. Because what they would normally do for, if they were going to have these gold glasses, they would mass produce them. They'd all look the same. But everyone looked different. Now, don't just think of a goblet. These things would sometimes be huge and ornate with, have different animals on them and stuff. I mean, some of them were literally this big. The cup part wasn't, but I mean, it was solid gold. Today's money, I mean, it was probably $20,000, $30,000 worth of gold just in this one thing. You know, I mean, it's insane, the amount of this. And everybody drank this. But he, and it, it says that the drinking wasn't compulsory. And one of the things is under Persian law is that when you were in the presence of the king and the king took a drink, 
you took a drink. Now, he just finished a 180-day binge. You'd think maybe he'd want to day off. His liver would probably thank him for that. But he made it to where they didn't have to because the custom would force the guests to drink essentially nonstop, and he is relaxing the command. He's saying, you know what? Drink as you will. Do whatever you want. That's just the way it worked. But then it says his queen, her name was Vashti, that she threw a party for the women that was separate from what was going on with the rest of the party. And the reason for this is that women did not drink in the presence of men, typically, under most things, but especially the queen in front of the king. Now, the king could get just completely drunk and, and be sloppy, and you, you're going to see that here in a moment, but, but the queen always had to have this, this aura to her. And so she would go off on her own and do that. So this was specifically for the women. And so what would happen many times is the queen would be in the room while the king was on his binger, and he may be getting tipsy or whatever, but once he was kind of getting to the point where he was happy, if you will, he would send the queen out, and in come the dancing girls and the concubines and all of that. Essentially, that's when the party starts. They send mama away so that he could have a good time is, is what he's doing. And so the name Vashti means beautiful woman. And the sources, some of the rabbinic sources claim that she was the granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar. May have been. We don't know for sure. But that's what they say. But she's extremely beautiful. Okay? Verse 10. It says, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Bizda, Harbana, Bigtha, Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold, hence her name. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious and his anger burned within him. Now, you remember I told you that he had a hot temper. You're, you're seeing this takes place. It's on the seventh day of the party, the last day. The king, it says, he's married with wine. That's a really nice way of saying he was drunk, okay? Old English, if you will. And so what does he do as he's drunk? He calls for the eunuchs. Now, remember, eunuchs were essentially castrated servants. They could not reproduce. They were loyal to the king. They were almost, I mean, you could be, slaves would sometimes be made that. Um, captives of foreign armies would sometimes be made that. But a lot of these guys were almost born into this type of thing. They were just given for that. But what does he want to do? He tells them, go get the queen. Bring her in here. I want her to wear her royal crown, and I want her to show everybody how beautiful she is. It doesn't sound like it's really that big of an ask, okay, until you get down to what they kind of think that, it is. First of all, her royal crown. We think of crown, but it really probably meant headdress, like you would see over there in the Persian Empire. But there are two different possibilities that are going on and what he is asking her to do, because she flat out refuses. Now, I don't know how many of you women would feel about this, but if you were just asked by your husband, hey, come in here, you're beautiful, and I just want people to see you. Maybe that would be awkward for you, but to me, I don't see what the big deal would be, but maybe not. But when you start looking into it a little deeper, then you can kind of maybe understand it, because there's a Jewish tradition about this. Is that the king didn't just want her to show up and then just parade around in her royal garments and all of that. He wanted her in the nude. He wanted her to come in there in her birthday suit, stark naked. Wear your crown, but nothing else. Now, that kind of changes the perspective a little bit. Maybe you can understand why she was a little, you know, up front and like, ah, I don't think so. That ain't going to happen. But the other option here is, and this is probably, the other one's Jewish tradition. This one is just customs and would make more sense, is that 
the king would call in the concubines and things like that for these public displays of beauty to show them off. But the queen was at a higher level. She was set apart as a different wife. Concubines had, had their place, but there were times that the king would call a concubine to him and then never talk to her again. She'd live in the palace. She had a great life, but he'd never deal with her again. But the queen was up here. And you didn't just ask the queen to do these kind of things. In other words, you're asking something that's beneath her status as a, a, uh, a priority wife, if you will, as the queen. So it's not going to go. She's not interested in doing that. One of the things that you'll know is that you do not refuse a command of the king. If he tells you to do something, you do it, or there are vast consequences. Verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew the law and justice, those closer to him being Kashina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, and who had access to the king's president and who ranked highest in the kingdom. What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to the law, because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs? And Mamukin said, answer before the king and the princess, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women, so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report. King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that there will not, it will not be altered. That Vashti will come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. And the reply pleased the king and the princess, and the king did according to the word of Mimukin. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in their own script, that every people in their own language, that each man should be master of his own house and speak in the language of his own people. She refused the command of the king which is a dangerous move. Remember, I said he's got a temper. Now, this is his wife. This is his queen. She's not just some piece of baggage. She's not just a wife. She is the wife. So he's upset and he consults the people, says that they understood the laws and the times. Remember, when something when it is in law that was uttered by the king like that, put into law, the king himself cannot reverse it. We saw that take place in Ezra. We see that take place in several places, right, as we go through this because it can't be undone. We saw that in the book of Daniel. And so they are concerned, and you see the motive behind it, not that what she did, but the example she's being to the other wives of the noblemen and the princes and things like that, that they, because she did this, disobeyed the king, that they can disobey their husband. So you see their motivation behind this. So they want the king to make a law because then it can't be broken. She's no longer going to be the queen and someone else will take her place. Now he likes that idea. In other words, he's shown there's consequences for these actions. And so they agree, and they send out letters to everyone, so everybody that knows all the areas and the, the languages that they may speak. But there's something important to keep in the back of your mind here, that when Queen Vashti was summoned by the king, she refused to come. The only way that you were allowed to go to the king is if you were summoned, even as the queen. You have to be summoned, and you need to keep that in the back of your mind as we go through this book, because that's important, and it is crucial to what Esther is going to do, okay? So let's jump into chapter 2, verse 1. 
after these things, the letter that went out and Vashti's being stepped down, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, in other words, he's no longer mad, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's servant who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of the kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, into the women's quarters, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. The thing pleased the king, and he did so. Now, they estimate there's about a four-year gap between chapter 1 and chapter 2. This wasn't the next day. There's actually a couple of battles that take place in, in that time frame. But he is no longer mad. He thinks about Vashti. He's not angry anymore. But he wants he, the law. She's done. He can't just go back and get her. out. So he, it's ready for somebody else. And he lays out three criteria for the new queen. She needs to be young. She needs to be a virgin. And she needs to be beautiful. Right? Just typical man, right? It's got to be perfect. Now, in this time frame, most girls would be married between ages of 12 and 14, different times, okay? So the young part kind of goes without mention. But the virgin part means that she's never been with a man. That was the bottom line because once that happened, technically, they would be required to marry that man. didn't often happen, but they would consider it as used goods. Remember, women were thought about a lot differently back then, okay? Now, this is not how God would necessarily proclaim it, but this is what he, the, the story is being portrayed here. And so, as they would be married between this age, this new bride would be in that range. So it gives you an idea of how old Esther likely was um, under normal circumstances. We don't know for sure how old she was, but likely in this time frame, okay? So, this is the criteria for a king to marry. That's what he wants to lay out. But there's another criteria that goes on beyond this that's not mentioned here. And you see in, in the writings of Herodotus that a Persian king was required, because Darius is the one to put this law in place, that a Persian king is, must choose his queen from seven noble families. That's it. That's where she comes from. Has to. That's the requirement of the law. Now, they didn't often follow that law all the time because they took on many wives and they were just, you know, they were, they were um, keepsakes, basically. But the bottom line is this, is that Esther does not meet that criteria at all. So they would bring these women to the women's quarters, which would be the home of the brides. This is where they would live. All the brides would live there, all the different wives and stuff like that. And it says it's for a time of beauty preparations would take place. Okay? Well, what does that mean? Well, you see here momentarily. Verse 5, in Shushan the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives, who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Now, here we are introduced to Mordecai. Now, these are names you're likely familiar with. Uh, any, if you, again, if you've ever seen VeggieTales, you at least know it from that, if you've never actually studied out the book. But it gives us a quick genealogy. You've got Mordecai, Jair, Shimei, and Kish. And it says that Kish was one of the ones that was taken a part of Jeconiah's reign. He only reigned for a couple of months. Was taken a part of Nebuchadnezzar's when they were exiled. So that's the line he comes from. But there's a name on there that should be extremely familiar, thinking back to the time of David in 2 Samuel, named Shimei. Shimei, Shimei, however you say it. Should be a familiar name. Because think when, when Absalom, David's son, attempts to overthrow the kingdom, and he, has, as, uh, he goes in there and, and he, uh, David leaves and they're fleeing, there's a guy that comes to him and starts cursing David. And he's actually throwing rocks at him, and this was Shimei. 
the very same guy that was cursing David. Now, Abishai, who was David's right-hand man there, wants to kill him, but David says, no, 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 no. We need to have mercy on the guy, you know, because David had done wrong. This is a result of David not doing things the way he was supposed to. And so David says, no, we're not going to kill him. Well, after the insurrection's all over, they begin to make their way back. The first guy on the scene, once they cross the river, Shemai. What's he do? Drops to his knees and begs for forgiveness. So he thought when a new kingdom was coming in town, it was safe to throw rocks at David and yell at him and curse at him. Now he's realized that's a bad idea. And so he's there. And again, Abishai wants to kill him. David says, no, they're going to show mercy. He spares him once again. Now think about that for a moment because the lineage of Mordecai comes from Shimei. If David hadn't spared the life of Shimei, Mordecai doesn't exist. Esther's parents were killed. They died, however that happened. And Mordecai takes them in, takes her in as his own daughter is what it said. They're cousins. This story would be completely different if David had made a different decision at that point. Pretty powerful. Now, it says that he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Who came from the tribe of Benjamin? There was a king that came from the tribe of Benjamin, Saul, right? Just keep that in the back of your mind. Lots of things to keep in the back of your mind. As I said, he was Esther's cousin. And so Mordecai is a Babylonian name. He doesn't actually give his Hebrew name. Okay, but this is a Babylonian name. This is one that comes from the captivity. Esther's is the Babylonian name for her. Her Hebrew name, as it just said, is Hadassah. Okay, so Esther's actually the Babylonian name, and that's how the book's titled, and that's how we know her. Esther's name derives from Ishtar, who was a pagan goddess in the Babylonian Empire. Okay, many people say the Statue of Liberty is, is a statue that looks like Ishtar. Okay, just stuff to know, information. So, the bottom line is this, is that they were Jewish. They were part of the exile. They were in the kingdom. She does not qualify to be the queen, but he's going to take her anyway. Verse 8, so it was when the king's command and decree were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel under the custody of Haggai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace, into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Now the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor. So he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best palace in the house of the women. So Esther was taken to the palace to begin this whole preparation process process, but she's in there with a large group of women. This wasn't just a few. I mean, there are hundreds, okay? Haggai's in charge of him. He was a eunuch. He was one of the servants of the king, and Esther immediately gains favor with him and is going to receive some benefits from that. It says that she was given more of the beauty preparation that was above what she was allowed, and, and we'll, I'll tell you what those are here in a minute. And it actually says she gets moved to a, a better place above where everybody else was living, and that seven servants were provided for her right? I mean, she gains favor, and that's going to be a trend with Esther. You're going to watch this, okay? Verse 10, now Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And every day Mordecai paced in the front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Each young woman's turn came to go to the king, and after she had completed 12 months preparation, According to the regulations for the women, for thus were the days of their preparations apportioned. Six months with oil, 
of myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. Thus prepared, each young woman went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. And in the evening she went, and in the morning she would return to the second house of the women, to the custody of Shegazah, however you say that, the king's eunuch who kept the concubines. She would not go to the king again unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. Now, let's go back to verse 10. Esther kept her ethnicity quiet. She told nobody that she was a Jew. Why did she do that? Because Mordecai told her not to. So she's being obedient. Now remember, this is her father, basically. They're cousins. But he is a father figure. Now he knew that she didn't qualify for the, as the queen. She probably didn't know that. But he certainly knew it. And he didn't just send her in and forget about her. He says that he paced in front of the women's quarters every day, just wanting to know what was going on with her. And so he was trying to figure this out. And so, but look at the preparation time. Year, one year before you were prepared enough to go see the king. It says six months with, with oil and myrrh and stuff, and then six months with perfumes and other beautifying methods. Now that's quite a makeover, okay? Now I know it takes women a long time to get ready, but that's a little, a little over the top, you know? And in the evening, when the, when the girl was ready, she would go to the king. It was the contestant, if you will. And she would take anything that she wanted to take with her. Um, because basically, they were expected to entertain the king, right? So it's the talent portion. Might be a mus musical instrument. Maybe she danced. Uh, maybe she juggled. I don't know what she did. Maybe she ate fire. I have no idea. But it was like you had the beauty portion and you have the talent portion. And these, they would be expected to entertain the king in some way. This sounds a lot like an episode of The Bachelor, if you ask me, more than it does anything like that. Like, you know, hey, go in there. Oh, I hope he gets, she gives, he gives me a rose. I hope I get one. You know, I mean, that's really what it was. But at the end, the next morning, now, there would be times that the king would have his way with her. just depends because these were not exactly godly people. But none of these women were sent back. Every one of them was sent to the concubine's house. In other words... That's what they become. And as I said before, they did not come back to him unless the king asked for them specifically. And a lot of times, it never happened. They would spend the rest of their lives living in that house. Any child that would happen to be born out of a relationship that way, because they were just another tier of wife, is what they were. The child would uh, get the same benefits that she would and stuff, but he had no right as an heir to the throne. Only the, the heir of the queen, essentially or more prominent wife. So it's kind of a, a big ceremony here that goes on. Verse 15. Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what he got, he got, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is in the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight, more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, it was the Feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. Now, we learned something specific here, and I mentioned it before, but this is where it lays it out. Esther's father was a name of Behel, and he was the uncle of Mordecai. So you, you see clearly the connection. They are cousins. But what do you see about Esther? 
it, it says this all the way through in the book. She finds favor with all that she comes in contact with. Obviously, the hand of God is upon her. And it says that she comes in the, in the, uh, to the king in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth. Now, if you look on a Hebrew calendar, you will not find that month because it does not exist because it is not a Hebrew name. It is a Babylonian calendar. It's in the month of December to January, somewhere in that range. And it's still a calendar that the Jews use today. They actually have two different ones that they use, but they still keep this one coming back from the time that they were in their captivity. And so Esther goes in, finds favor with the king more than any other woman that had been there, and so he makes her the queen. And so all the kings that could have chosen, all the women that were there, he could have chosen any one of them, but he chose her. And that's going to be important here in a minute, or here probably next week you're going to see this kind of play out. But she finds favor with everyone involved, and so what does the king do? Well, what's the king good at? Partying. So he throws a party. That's what he does. And, of course, it's a lavish party because he doesn't really need an excuse to throw one. He just, you know, it's a day that ends in Y. Let's have one, okay? Now let's look at verse 19. When virgins were gathered together a second time, so now we're, going, we're fast-forwarding a little bit, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people, just as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of, of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, don't think the book of the Chronicles is the Chronicles that we have in our Bible. Every king had a book chronicling what they would do. Now, what it says here appears there's a second group of virgins that are brought in. We don't know why, um, because it really never gives us an answer. What we do know is Xerxes had actually more concubines than Solomon did, and he had 300. So apparently, he was never satisfied. Think about the lifestyle he lived. It was extremely lavish. The parties were lavish. The decor was lavish. Everything was lavish. And so he was never satisfied with what he had. He was always looking for more. But we see something about Mordecai because he hears about this, and he is within earshot of Esther. He's within the king's gate. Now, this tells us something about Mordecai, that he likely carried a position of power inside the kingdom because that is where these people would be. There was the courtyard where, you know, different um, trades would be going on, you know, merchants, stuff like that. But where he is at is only a place that you would be if you were a somebody inside of the kingdom. Now, it doesn't tell us that directly, but think about it. He is the father of the queen. So it makes sense that he would be elevated to a place of authority. And remember, they don't know they're Jewish. They still don't know because it emphasizes that she had not said anything because Mordecai had not told them to. But while he's in this gate, while he's doing what he does, he catches wind of this conspiracy. And he gives two names, Bigthan and Teresh. And it says that they were doorkeepers. And what do they want to do? They want to kill the king. So they want to lay their hands on him, but that's what they're talking about it. Now, doorkeepers in the king is the highest position of, of trust that you can have because they basically let people in and out. They can let in somebody that you don't trust or just the people that you do. So there was a lot, um, uh, an enormous amount of trust put on them. Now, it doesn't tell us exactly how Mordecai hears what's going on, but Josephus writes that it was one of the slaves of these doorkeepers that actually tells Mordecai about this plot don't know for sure, but that's according to Josephus. And so he gets word to Esther, 
who goes to the king and tells him in his name. Now, he could have told anybody because he's obviously a position of power. He could not go to the king directly. He wasn't there. He invited the king, but there were people that could. But he chose to go through Esther, uh, which is going to make sense later on because there's something going on that's unfolding behind the scenes here. And so Esther goes and tells the king and tells him that it was Mordecai that told me what's going on. And so what do they do? They look into the matter. They find out what's happening. They find out that it's absolutely true. These men are guilty of an insurrection. It says that they're hanged on the gallows. Now, when we hear that, we think of something different than what the text actually says because what is being implied here, what's being conveyed, is these men were actually impaled on large stakes, large beams. Now, this was common execution method during the Persian Empire. Remember, we talked about this before, but Darius impaled 3,000 men all at once at the end of one of the battles that they were in. But what's interesting here is Mordecai unfolds this, this, this thing that's going on. Esther tells the king. So what are they doing? They're gaining trust with him. Now, when somebody would do this and alert the king of something that was going on against his life, they were immediately lavish with praise, lavish with gifts. They were always brought into the king's courtyard. None of that happens. Nothing. It's interesting that the gift wasn't given yet, okay? But there is something that's coming down the pike. I'd encourage you to go home and read the book this week, and we get into it a little bit further. Because next week, we're going to be introduced to a man named Haman. And that man is the epitome of evil. Now, Haman comes on the scene. He's got a very interesting lineage. And we're going to connect some dots to some other things that we've talked about in the past to see all of this going on. And it's going to be amazing when you see the hand of God of what's going on in this book. Because remember, what are we looking for? How did the Messiah get here? Where is Jesus and all of that? Without what happens in this book, Jesus cannot be born the way he was.